In this episode of The Ziggler Show, our focus is your ability to change. Not a little, but a lot. We all desire to grow as individuals, to increase our capacity and ability, our resilience and wisdom, our character and our peace, to be people who deal expertly with the waves of the world and have plenty of depth to draw on for the service of other people. But as you're going to hear in this show, I've often looked myself at incremental changes and sometimes question just how much someone truly can change. So I bring you the incredible story of Tommy Breedlove, who joins me in this episode. Tommy is a high-end executive life coach who has influenced the lives of so many of the leaders I've had on these very podcasts. His story is one of an abused kid in poverty who was mercilessly bullied and grew up to be a bully. At 18, he beat someone up so badly he was charged with two felony accounts and imprisoned. Later, he put his anger towards business, made a lot of money until he came to his end again. And ultimately, his story is someone who went from really just a heart of darkness, a dark place, to a heart that so many now turn to for light. And it's just a dramatic shift. And we discuss it in depth in this episode. If you want to hear more of Tommy's story, you can see it in his book, Legendary, a simple playbook for building and living a legendary life and being remembered as a legend. Find it at Amazon or wherever you get your books. Tommy's going to join us in just a moment. Welcome, everyone. I'm Kevin Miller. I host three podcasts where we have candid discussions regarding the root issues of personal change and growth. This is The Ziggler Show. It's a top-ranked all-time career podcast in Apple Podcasts, and our focus is growing your professional success by helping you grow into your full capacity. My Motive podcast is devoted to clarifying the reasons that drive you. My True Life podcast is aimed at getting you fully functioning physically so your body doesn't hold you back. You can find all three shows in Apple Podcasts. Just search for Kevin Miller or go to my website, kevinmiller.co. Tommy, you, your life and the change you went through I'm not going to say, I almost want to say it kind of defies some of my perspectives, but it sure pushes on them. I see here, here's what I was ruminating on literally as I was pacing around before we got on. And I thought I've seen movies, you know, the classic movie where it comes on and there's this person who's, you know, maybe nothing special or maybe they're down and out, or maybe they're actually kind of bad. And then something happens, right? The inciting incident as Donald Miller would say happens and they rise to the occasion and become the hero. It's a great story. And, but here's the thing. I often look at it and I go, it's too much. It's too much to get those qualities out of that person, to think that those qualities existed or were dormant or were able to come to fruition out of that person. And so I honestly, it makes a good movie, but I kind of have felt like that. And that's your story. Mm, It is. It's a little mind blowing when we're here in this arena of personal development and we're all kind of trying to make these incremental changes, you know, and think I can be a better version of myself. I can do more. I mean, you flip-flopped a life. I mean, do you look back at the, the, the 18-year-old drunk bully and associate it all with that person? Not even remotely. And not only that, like it's not even like that person exists anymore. And to make it even worse, I spent almost 20 years in large corporate financial consulting and I've been out of it for 10 years. It's like it never happened. Isn't that this craziest thing? Like it, all of these things defined who we are, yeah. our scars, our wounds, our insecurities, our fears, our mistakes. But, you know, looking back, I mean, you start talking about incrementally. I went such, such through a massive change so quickly. It's almost like those periods in my life didn't exist. But I'm so grateful for them because it is where I got to today, right? I mean, so they, they are in me and they are a part okay. of me for sure. They're part of the story. Okay. Okay. I want to, I want to ask about that, but it, or, or we're going to dig into that. But, and again, so I had uh, Benjamin Hardy on my show, Dr. Benjamin Hardy. Again, I've had him on three times now or something. And he was talking about, I don't know if he had a terminology for it, but how we often, if we ask ourselves, Hey, you know, do you feel different than who you were five years ago? We generally say, Oh my gosh, yes. I can't believe, you know, who I was back then. I've come so far, but we think who we are now is who we are. We don't think that we're going to be that much different in five years. How is that? How do you look at that now? How do you look at having changed so drastically to what you just said? Here you are now. 
I mean, you're still human. You still got to feel like, okay, I kind of, I'm kind of there now. Right. I've kind of arrived. (laughs) Well, I don't know if I'll ever arrive if I was going to be completely transparent. Okay. Um, I do actively put out there that I want to be just a little bit better than I was yesterday. Yeah. And I don't even know what that means sometimes, but here's what I think it means that I want to be a little bit more emotionally in control, mentally in control. And I, I'm one of those believers. The only thing we control is our choices. That is it. Um, but I also strive to be the same man at home that I am out in public or on podcasts or on a stage. And so for me, man, I am actively working on being a little bit better. I mean, I have coaches, I'm in masterminds, I have a inner circle, I have people that hold me accountable and I hold myself accountable. But you know, in the last five years, my life has exponentially changed and it's compounding interest as opposed to compounding the darkness, which I did for okay. 37 years. Yeah. I'm compounding the light, right? Yeah. Standing with courage, standing with gratitude, standing with love and as opposed to the darkness. I'm working really hard, brother, to get on the right side of karma because there was a lot of darkness for 37 years, my man. Well, and I, I'm probably remiss to jump back. I'm so eager to, to talk about some of the forward, where you are now and what you're doing with this information, you know, with your customers, clients, audience, and and whatnot. But on that, I, I do feel like I am in that perspective of, you know, we're all here, we're all doing fairly well, and we're making those incremental changes. When you look back at having made such a significant change, do you sometimes, as you're working with people, do you sometimes feel like we are taking too small a step? Like if we, if we would perceive not making an incremental change, but would we, would we be willing to consider a, a radical change? We'd be better off. Yeah. I, I think it takes both. Right. Um, I think it's intention and action and action intention. And so here's what I think when you're talking about change or self-development or improving in some facet, you know, whether it's business financially, I think the easiest and most impactful thing to do is take away the negatives. And that has an immediate impactful immediate, huge impact in your life. And I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. If you're eating five slices of cake a day and you want to lose weight, stop eating the, take the negative thing away. Stop eating the five pieces of cake. If you're drinking 25 beers a night, of course that has a negative effect on you. If you're constantly talking negative to yourself, hanging around negative people, playing video games 24 hours a day, or consuming all that negative social media. If you stop that, that'll have an immediate impact on your life, but it doesn't build the muscles. And I'm not just talking about the physical muscles as a former world-class bike star like you were. We were just talking about that off where, which is one of the coolest thing I've heard in a while, by the way. Thank you. Great stories. Um, just like your physical muscles, the long-term work in self-esteem, self-confidence, courage, business improvement, all of those things, that's building the data. That's the small incremental. You're not going to go to the gym and all of a sudden be LeBron James. Same thing goes with courage, self-esteem, self-esteem is cultivated and confidence is also cultivated by doing the reps. So every day you got to go to the emotional gym, the mental gym, the spiritual gym and the physical gym. And then one month from now, you'll be stronger. Six months from now, you'll be stronger. 365 days from now, you'll be a whole lot stronger and better. So I think it's a huge change that you have to make. And that's by taking away the negative, whatever that negative is. And then you've got to slowly implement the positive. And over time, it does have the compounding interest effect. Okay. So let me jump back then in your story. It's interesting. I didn't mean to do this necessarily, but speaking of Ben Hardy, I had him back on a show. So we did a show together. Uh, I don't know, six months ago or so. And just in the process of the show, he just happens to mention that he was out of high school, no skills, no interests, playing video games literally all day long. So he just mentions that and then goes on. Well, I came back to this and said, dude, I want to talk about that. How did you come from (laughs) that to anything over here? Well, similarly, so here you are, you had a fairly rough upbringing you yep. were bullied, you became the bully, and yep. then you talk about at 18, you were inebriated, beat somebody up, it was felony charges, dropped to misdemeanors, but two years in jail. So I'm going to put you in the same category. You, you didn't really have, well, I, I, did you have some threads, any kind of anchors that later you were able to grab onto, or were you just kind of a blank slate 
at that point? I think it was a blank slate. Okay. And like you said, I grew up in and around abuse and violence. And the part of that story that not many people know is I actually was scheduled to be the first person to go to university in my family. I had a full ride to Georgia, half a ride to the University of Miami and a few other places as well. And so I was going to be the one who escaped what I would call the, that lifestyle. Right. And um, in growing up with that abuse and violence, I became that abuse and violence. So here's what happened to me when I was incarcerated. I was sentenced to two years and spent my 19th birthday in, in, in behind bars. However, I didn't, luckily I didn't have to spend that whole two years, but here's the first major thing that happened to me in my life. And I didn't put it together until somewhat recently is a, a big 45 year old, very muscular African-American gentleman decided to step over. Tony, I know I was going to ask. Yeah. Tony decided to step over racial lines and show me some positive male mentorship in my life. And I think he loved me when I couldn't. Great question. Why would I mean, maybe could I mean, be a God the, the, uh, well, I don't Well, I'm asking if you look at that and go, gosh, I maybe it was because of X, Y, Z, because this is the, I, I'm going to be hitting on. This is why I wanted to talk about, Tommy, is we're always wondering what is the ingredient that made somebody do X and somebody else similarly from a same you know scenario? Not because we want to yeah. bottle that up. And of course, we could make a billion dollars selling one pill of that if we know. <laughs> so so even there. So here you are. You, you don't have any specific anything going for you. So he looked, you know, here's this dude in jail himself. What was he in jail for? Uh, you know, I don't know what he, he was in and out of the system his whole life. Wow. Um, so I don't, I don't actually know what he was in. I can't remember. It's, it's been 30 years though. And so, so he picks you out. So he picked for, for no rhyme or reason that you know of, he picks you out and says, he picks me out. and it was a little scary at first because where I thought I was a tough kid, when I realized I was a skinny little white kid in a South Atlanta jail, I realized that I was actually a sheep and not a, you know, a yeah. wolf. And so, um, you, the, why he did it, that that's a great question. Hmm. I have no idea, but I'm super grateful that he did do it. Um, from a mentorship standpoint, accountability standpoint, he called me young blood, by the way. Um, he's like young blood, you're not going to become a part of this revolving door system because he basically was submitting that his life has been just in and out, in and out, in and out, and he couldn't escape it now. And he wanted me to be different. And um, I don't know if it was just pure kindness. I don't know if it was compassion, empathy. He wanted a second chance. He mm -hmm. saw something in me. Um, I, I have no idea why he chose to do that, but he did it and he did it well, which was instrumental. It was the first real true positive male mentor I had in my life. I just didn't have that. And for that to appear at the most unusual places, who knows why he did it? And sometimes we don't even know why we do things. Maybe we just do things. Maybe he had a moment of goodness. So what did he do? So, you know, every day he spent hours and hours with me when I wasn't working. By the way, you just don't sit there and stare at each other. You actually have jobs that you go do. And mine consisted of cleaning toilets oh, yeah. and washing police cars. And so at night, you know, we would sit around and play dozens and dozens of games of cards and chess and all that other stuff. And I never won any of them. And that's another <laughs> lesson you'll learn in there is, you know, if you ever want to hire a convict, their, their hustle makes them great salespeople, by the way. Just FYI, okay. you just got to convert them into that. Good to know. Um, but he would spend hours and hours talking to me about his life and all the mistakes that he made and how he's got four young children at home that he never gets to see. Mm. And and honestly, he would go even deeper in that. And, you know, I don't want to go too deep into this, but he would basically talk about that some other man's now with his girl. Right. And so that's, you know, and he saw something in me from intelligence to charisma to potential, I guess. And he goes, you don't belong here, man. Um, you've got to go do something with your life. And it was very motivational. It was very action driven. He held me accountable because it's easy to slip into bad things there as well from drugs to alcohol, to fighting, to violence, especially violence. And so um, he would never allow me to get involved in that. And so it was a, it was, it was a, truly a father figure, hmm. but from a place of goodness is what he did for me. Goodness. Did you keep up with Tony? What happened to Tony? I did. So we kept up with each other for about four or five years. And then um, as I started transitioning from, I literally went from jail to Deloitte and Touche in three years. Yeah. In that time period though, um, he digressed back into certain old behaviors mm. and it ended up, he ended up, he did get out and then he went back and then he and I both chose to, that our paths were going in a different way that this is, t this is where our, uh, 
our friendship probably will move on from there. So yeah. I haven't seen him since, unfortunately, wow. but I hope he's doing well. well what a, he's got to be in his, he's got to be 60 or 70 now. So how amazing what, what we can get from different people, no matter what, uh, you know, if you look back and say you experienced so much pain, maybe your 18 year old self that got you incarcerated was just reacting you know, to pain. And here you get this guy you came out with a motive to do something to make, well, was it to make something like I'm going to make something achieve something? Or is it, I just don't want that to happen at least. I think it was fear is one thing is I didn't want to go back yeah. there. That place is not fun to be at. Yeah. Um, there's nothing, there's no, there's nothing there. Um, so I think fear was a great motivator. I think Tony was a great motivator. And candidly, I was still packed with rage and I didn't know it. I was so unconscious, Kevin. I had no idea that I was just loaded in rage and anger. So as opposed to using my fists, um, like I had done when I was younger, I decided to use it in school, in business. And honestly, I was carrying, and I'm just going to say it, an FU backpack. You know, I was really shaking my fists at the world saying, hey, watch me do this. So went to work in a factory during the day and yeah. community college at night, ended back at the University of Georgia. And in three years, I, I was hired at Deloitte by just outworking and out hustling everybody. But I still wasn't happy, fulfilled, content. I was just still that young boy full of rage, honestly looking to be seen, heard, loved and valued. What took you the finance direction? Why did you choose that as a vehicle? So, because I hear you say you could have taken that and gone to the boxing ring, you could have yep. taken it to athletics or whatever. What? Why uh, was there anything specific that took you that direction? I think the reason I didn't go anything further athletically is <laughs> ability. <laughs> Let's oh, well. just be honest. Okay. <laughs> and I was a basketball player and a pretty darn good one. Um, Honestly, it was where I could get a job. So I was financing all of my college. And this was in the early 90s, early to mid 90s. And it wasn't, I, w I went through all of the majors, marketing, real estate, management, you name it, and landed on accounting because it was the only one I saw getting job, people getting jobs, and they were getting good paying jobs. So you're talking about a kid who was making between $350 to $6 an hour his whole life. Yeah. And then I knew if I worked hard enough and made, unbelievable grades that these big firms like Deloitte, Pricewaterhouse, Ernst & Young, McKinsey, all those guys would recruit us and they'd pay us a whopping twenty-seven dollars to $30,000 a year, which to me sounded like a million. And I thought it was a million. And so the only reason I landed in accounting and finance is because I could get a job there. That did, is literally the only reason I did it. But it must have been married with some aspect of financial acumen. I was So... This is going to sound a little egotistical. I was born and my mom and dad gave me a lot of things. One of the things they gave me is a good brain. And so business, accounting, money, um, finance, it all came very easy to me. I didn't have to work very hard at it and made really, really amazing grades. And I love the competitiveness of business. And I love business was an e even playing ground that if you worked hard enough with grit and learned the tools of the trade, that you could become whatever you wanted to be. So I was more into business than I was accounting and finance, okay. but accounting finance, which is the language of business, helped me to become something great later in life. You are listening to The Ziggler Show and this episode with Tommy Breedlove talking about the breadth of just how much we can really change. Again, if you want to hear more of Tommy's story, Go to Amazon and find his book, Legendary, a simple playbook for building and living a legendary life and being remembered as a legend. And visit his website at TommyBreedlove.com. anymore, which was what I was told I was. Yeah. And so um, the group, I found a bunch of other blue collar boys. So, so University of Georgia was interesting for me because I'd never seen 18, 19, 20 year olds driving BMWs and Mercedes. I'd never seen that before. I'd never seen all the laughter and learning. You know, I grew up a, little, a lot differently than that. And so it was like this, you know, Oz for me. And I knew I wanted to make the best of it. So I partied hard while I was there, but I also worked my butt off to make good grades, join all these business fraternities and honor societies and all these other things. But my muse was success. And I honestly thought that 
by having nice things and a big home and a fancy suit and a corner office and the shiny cufflinks that I would be happy, fulfilled, and ultimately get the quote woman of my dreams. I thought, you know, that's what I thought happiness and success was. Right. And so I went after it with all of my power. And that's, that's what I did. Do you find, uh, again, I'm going to, in painting the picture here. So before your time in jail, did you, would you see, would you cite yourself as having much of any drive prior to that? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, I was forced into drive. And so if I didn't, I was, <clears throat> I was taught a lot of things as a young puppy. Uh, one is that I was certainly not lovable enough and valuable. But the second thing I taught, if you don't make good grades, basically do all X, Y, and Z throughout this house, through this yard, through everything. If you didn't, if you weren't perfect, it came with severe consequences. And I mean, severe. And so the drive, I, I don't know if that's a good thing, bad thing, or indifferent. It's probably not great parenting, but it worked on some level because I always had, always made unbelievable grades. I was always very smart. Things came to me easy. But if I didn't do those things, if I didn't meet those standards, the physical, mental, emotional, sexual, whatever abuse, the consequences of that for me and my sister were severe. I mean, super severe. Okay. So I had a lot of drive and always until my senior year, when I really started rebelling, always made unbelievably good grades. And I was super popular in school, which was weird. I don't know how, yeah. which is weird. I think because I developed charisma yeah. and I was able to fit in with everyone. The tough guys, the cool kids, the golf people, the band nerd. I mean, all of us, you know, and I was all of those things. And I think my survival instincts allowed me to become whoever I needed to become to get people to like me so that I could survive. And I think that that was also one of the unintended consequences of growing up like that. Well, you use the word developed charisma. Do you look back on it then as a somewhat conscious decision to embody? Okay. So, so you didn't say it wasn't, Oh yeah. Tom, uh, Tommy's always yeah, a charismatic guy. You no. Okay. You became, that's a big deal. I became charismatic and it was a survival technique. So when I, so I was the youngest boy in an all uh, good, hardworking blue collar part of South Atlanta near the airport. If anybody's ever been to Atlanta, I grew up right around that airport. And I was the youngest by at least a year, but mostly three years of all the boys. And I was skinny, skinny, skinny. Now I'm six foot two. I'm a big dude now. Um, but then I was very skinny, very weak and, and carried a lot of beatings on the street because of that. Cause that's just what we did as boys back then as we, you know, now I was the, I was the, the victim of a lot of that. And then there was no safety at home either. Right. Hmm. So as I got bigger and stronger and, um, developed more social skills, I started seeing what the cool kids and the sports people and all them acted, did. And I just mimicked them. I saw how they dressed. Uh -huh. Even if I had to go steal, which I did to dress like them. And I'm not proud of that. These are just survival techniques as a young, so I could quote fit in. And so I just started mimicking what all the cool kids did and said and with some of this charisma, I also was funny back then. Like I played the funny guy. That was another yeah. mask that I wore in order to make people laugh and like me. And so I developed all these survival techniques, which later in life, when you use them for good, has really helped me. So drive you had, you go to prison, have your time with Tony. He gives you a a different direction at least for your drive. So you come out and put it towards something that we would say is productive. So you put it towards yep. grades, you put it towards uh, your, your schooling, you get a job and you now have productive uh, drive, but it's not in health or towards necessarily any goodness. Is that fair? No, it was just all about winning, yeah. winning at all costs. Um, and trying to, and I didn't know it at the time. Again, this was all unconscious. All I knew is if I worked really hard and shot up through the ranks of these big financial firms that I would make a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of bumps, scars, bruises, and, um, skint knees along the way, because that insecure little boy that would come out in rage or arrogance or funny guy, cool guy, important guy, they, he showed up a lot. 
and in a lot of unhealthy ways. And so there was turns and twists, but I knew if I just kept staying the course and used the skills that I had developed with my intelligence, that I would get to the top. And I did, but it came at severe consequences to friends, family, uh, what ultimately became my wife. Cause I worked a million hours. Um, when I wasn't working, I was drowning myself in all of the darkness that a lot of men drown themselves in because I was still trying to be that little boy that just wanted to be powerful, seen, heard, love. Right. And, uh, it just manifest, I just didn't look at me. And so, I mean, I had no self-respect, no self-confidence, no courage. And, uh, it, it, but it looked like on the outside that I had all those things, right? all of those things. And I didn't. So everything looks good. And then you talk about in the book, I think you you said you're 36 and you wake up in a ditch. (laughs) Unless I missed it. Did you ever clarify exactly what happened there? Cause I'm, I I kept wondering, is this like a a drunken thing out of somewhere? Did you, it was a car wreck. What it was uh, three days of pure chaos. Okay. And so, um, three days of you name it, me and my crew and ultimately me by myself was doing it. Yeah. Um, because at that time I was a junior partner at a firm, I had the fancy suit, nice car, making a lot of money, um, had power of the corner office. And, um, I basically turned to the, think the Mad Men lifestyle yeah. on steroids with the Wolf of Wall Street mixed in there. Yeah. And it was just three days of pure chaos, debauchery and, um, and on some level, Kevin, this sounds weird. And I, I've never been uh, very depressed or suicidal, but I think in some way, unconsciously, I was trying to get something or someone else to kill me. Yeah. There was fist fights in those three days. There was a lot of, lot of darkness. And um, it just culminated. I woke up, didn't know where I was, half dressed, looking up at the bright blue sky. And probably, brother, I'm not kidding, probably three days before that I was doing some multi-million dollar audit or M&A deal or something like, I mean, probably sitting in some boardroom. And here I am looking at the sky half-dressed and it was my, it was my final aha moment because I knew if I didn't change that this road would come to an end and it would be death or, or back to even worse for me going back to prison because I would do something to myself or someone else that would hurt them. And that's the moment I said, aha, I don't know if it was me. I don't know if it was God, higher power, whatever. Something in me said it was, I honestly, I think it was, it's time to go figure out who you are and where you're going and, and live with some love and self-confidence. And so that's where my journey began was in that ditch. My so, second journey. Was that a, was that a literal reaching out then of saying, okay, things are bad and looking, oh, what's a resource. I got to get a lifeline. And that's what led you to, uh, the retreat, well, you said something effective retreat in Tennessee or Nashville or something like that, which I'm guessing was on site. It was on site. Okay. Changed my life. I, it's if there's amazing. Anything in the world that I would plug is them. <laughs> I, you know, honestly, Tommy, I have, th- I keep hearing that. Well, I had miles on the show. Uh, I love miles. Adcock. good dude, man. Yeah. I had him on a couple years ago, but this is pre Oprah, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, it's it's a pretty amazing the testimonials that I have. So so somebody turned you on to that. So you go and it's a, a you know I don't know what it was back then, but it's a, a multi day you know pretty big ticket price to yeah. go there, yeah. and it's intense counseling. So you were motivated enough to say I got to change. Some somebody turned you on to that, and you said okay. Yeah, let me tell you, turn it on to me. Yeah. Clearly, my wife and I were going through a lot of relationship counseling and coaching marriage counseling. And, you know, this is kind of a cute part of the story is Kevin, every time we would go uh, to these marriage counselors, they would say, Hey, Heather, which is my wife, why don't you stay home? And Tommy, why don't you come alone next time? At first I was thinking, yeah, they're going to tell me she's the problem because she's the problem. Right. Right. And really I was the problem because they knew I couldn't feel, I literally was incapable of feeling I was incapable of just opening up. I was closed. They could see something like they could see the darkness brewing inside of me. And finally, one of these counselors said this to me eye to eye, and I'll never forget him said, he goes, Tommy, there's a place in Tennessee that can do more for you in seven days than I can do in 10 years. When you are ready, I will get you in there. Wow. And I called him that very next day. I was like, I don't care what I have to do, what it costs please get me in the next one. And he did. Wow. And he did. So you go there and 
have quite an experience and I wrote down here, let me see if I can come up with it. The line that was given to you, do you want to live your life or do you want to continue to live your story? So back to the beginning here, me talking about the movie scene and whatnot, how significant, immediate was your change of heart and or actions and behavior. And I say, and, or, because I know that you you can uh, cart before the horse sometimes. How did it happen? So within seven days, that place did a unbelievably remarkable job of cutting me open metaphorically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and putting me back together. And for the first time, so it was a exponentially one 180 degree in seven days. And when I left there, here's what I love about them is they gave me these tools and formulas to follow. And I did it because I knew this was going to be a lifelong journey for me. Um, so two, a lot of things happened there. A, I knew why I wasn't alone. And I think that's what we all need to hear with our fears, insecurities, uh, self-talk, whatever has happened to us or whatever we've done, no matter how big or small, you're not alone in your desires, your fears, your insecurities, and or your story. Yeah. And so it was, it was the first time, Kevin, and I'm not kidding, that I remember feeling in 37 years. And they took us through this meditation on like day three or four, where you had to go back and talk to your young self and I'm telling you, it cracked, it cracked me. That's what broke me. And from a guy who was tough as nails, making a lot of money, wearing the shiny suit, comes from the streets, suffered every form of abuse as a kid. And I'm no victim, by the way. I, I hold all that stuff in gratitude now. But I held it. I was a victim. I let it anchor me down for years, not holding gratitude. But it, that particular section broke me. And they had been slowly breaking me so that I could feel and rebuild me. And when they broke me, I mean, for the first time, I, I was uncontrollably crying for two and a half. And I'm a six foot two, 235 pound dude. Um, it broke me. And I saw my young self. I saw that I wasn't alone. Honestly, brother, I, I believe in God. And I, I felt like I, I felt something bigger than me for the first time ever in my life. And I had hope for the first time in my And that happened within three or four days there after 37 years of the exact opposite. So it was, it was huge for me. I'm not going to leave the trajectory here, but you two or three times there talked about how you could not feel. And we can tend to look at that as a psychological psychosomatic type thing. But I'm curious because I'm really interested in the amount of, attention narcissism is getting right now. And that's a word that obviously is put along there a lot. When you hear this word narcissist, cause we're acting like it's this virus that's going around like coronavirus, you know, and we got all these narcissistic people and, and all this talk against them and that it's just that this personality defect or evil that these people are in the, your role now as coach counselor, uh, and, and all that, do you look at that aspect of narcissism and think these are just broken people who need to, well, they need to be broken that it's, yeah. I think they are broken and you and I both know, I mean, this is, this is, this is an old saying, but it's so applicable. Hurt people, hurt people. Yeah. And, um, we're wired, you know, from our environment to our culture, to, things that we read, the people we're around and the things that we were surrounded with for our lives, we become what we love and what we hate. And usually narcissist is insecurity on steroids. Um, and it comes from pain, emotional and mental and sometimes physical pain and trauma. And it's a comp it's it, all it is, is kind of, you know, a, it's a coping mechanism. And here's what I do believe though. <clears throat> with the amount, a right amount of tension and action. I'm not one of these, let's just go chant stuff and it happens. You've got to set the intention and take action, whether it's coaching, therapy, a combination of both, masterminds, mentor, whatever it might be, um, <clears throat> that anything that's wired into you, anything can be unwired. It just takes a lot of discipline, hard work. And by the way, there is no destination. It's like you're like, go back to the muscle analogy. If you don't work out, you will get out of shape. Your yeah. body will atrophy. Same thing goes with your heart, soul, and mind. And the harder you work on those muscles, the stronger, more confident, 
more loving, more empathetic, more abundant you become. And narcissism, it is, it is an epidemic, <clears throat> but we're promoting it. Look at our social media, our news, our, look, at what's, look at the poison that's coming into our eyes and ears on a daily basis. How can we not be afraid, envious, angry, divided, us versus them, and become self-centered? How can we not? Because it's just constant poison that's coming into our eyes and ears, but we can choose to turn it off okay, th- and rewire. Th- and th- there's my interest. That's why I, I don't usually talk about narcissism and uh, psychoanalytical <laughs> con- conditions. Well, but that's what came to me as you're talking, as I'm thinking, okay, can we, should we, would we be better served to look at this aspect, this uh, virus of, of narcissism as it's not some innate condition all these people have, but no. an unfortunate result is what you're saying of the circumstances we're in right now over a long period of time. Okay. It is the result. Yeah. And you know, we all need to be Facebook and Instagram fabulous. You know, we got to put our best selves out there. We're, we're striving to be perfect. We can't show weakness. Um, we're being told we're being shamed and bullied incessantly over our 24 hour news, our social media, um, and even in the shows that we watch on Netflix and Amazon, they, I mean, it's like we're being puppeteered, right? And if you get told you're a victim your whole life, you're going to believe you're a victim. And if you're going to be told that something is inherently wrong with you your whole life or you're less than or shoulda, woulda, couldaves, and, you know, we all think that if we own the take the picture of getting out of the Lamborghini, we're going to be happy. That's BS, man. It doesn't work that way. Um, and I'm not saying money's not important. I'm a money guy, <clears throat> but at the end of the day, we are wired right now and it's intentional to be divided, yeah. to be scared, to be angry, to be us first them, to feel like victims. And our society literally is saying this right now, you're either a victim or a bigot. Well, that's not true. I don't know either. Right. And I had a lot of things done to me in the past, but it was up to me to change that. You know, there was no magic pill. There's no, you know, government's not going to come help me in a, or a guy on a magic horse, yeah. which Tony kind of was that guy for me. Um, <clears throat> but at the end of the day, again, not to go back to it, anything that we have in our bodies and souls that whether it's anger, hate, not good enough, don't feel successful, don't feel happy, our relationship with our spouse isn't as good as we need it to be. Go find the nearest mirror. That's the problem and the solution. And so that's something I believe. And it takes personal accountability and a lot of hard work. But narcissism, the epidemic of it, it's up to us to change it. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about that because I look at the culture right now and somewhat grapple with two sides. I'm not a conspiracy theorist type of person, but I am concerned about the true uh, reality of evil one. Yep. And also, and I'm not a, I'm not an anti-money guy either. I have been, unfortunately, <laughs> but I, I'm not anymore. I'm, 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 I'm <laughs> good. <laughs> plenty good with, I'm plenty good with it, but co- you know, commerce is commerce. Money is money. And I do sometimes wonder, is there more, I, I think there, I know there's more money in illness than in health, right? At least the way that we've constructed things thus far, uh, that there must also be money in this, aspect of victimization that it sells more that it that it it, that it draws that it literally pays more and it pays a lot more yeah um why do you think you know cigarette alcohol drug psychology um depression is the highest it's ever been um i own a lodge in north georgia and literally sight unseen uh, a rehab facility because i can't build them fast enough it's trying to buy it for a huge amount more than i paid for it um, which is sad. I'm not saying that because of the business angle of it. I'm saying it's sad. Yeah. Um, I'm seeing, I run a mastermind and this is strange. I'm not kidding. A significant amount of the men in that mastermind, their daughters are struggling with eating disorders more than I've ever seen, more than I've ever seen. That's, that's social media. That's perfectionism. That's fear. That's my body's not good enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not skinny enough. I, I don't have big enough these or whatever. And it that pain and by the way, uh, our, our political parties want us to feel pain. Yeah. Both sides are saying this. You don't have to do any. I've got you. This other side is trying to destroy you. They're trying to take away everything from you. And just follow me. Pain sells. Yeah. Um, and it's, look, at, look at the TV. Like, go to your Netflix. 
99 out of 100 documentaries, films, movies, or shows caters to darkness. Sex, pain, murder, violence, drugs, you name it. And we're drawn to it like flies to flypaper. It is insane. And I don't know why. Here's the final example, and I'll, I'll be quiet because I know we're way off script. <laughs> I don't think we had a script. It's a great yeah. script. It's a better script. <laughs> but think about this. This is how we're drawn to the negative, and this is an easy analogy. And we'll use social media as an analogy. You post a post, and you get 99 likes, and then you get one comment, and the comment basically says you're a fraud, you're a loser. You're not going to remember the 99 right. nice things people said. You're going to remember the one negative. And we are drawn to pain because we're in pain and it's up to us to get out of the pain and to turn it off and to start participating in our own rescue. That is, uh, that is profound, man. It's, it's a great tangent we got on there. It's interesting when you talk about the shows right now. I mean, I love a good show, you know, at the end of the day or something. Yellowstone man, but it's pain. uh, (laughs) that, That was (laughs) <laughs> that that thing teared me up at by the end uh yeah. of of it. It was so harsh. I've never I haven't recommended it. I watched it. I didn't have my family watch it with me, but I did. But I found myself I, I'm worn out with what you talked about with the spirit. And we found ourselves somebody had us turn us on to show with uh doggone it. What Kiefer Sutherland, he was the president. What was that? Designated uh, Survivor. Designated Survivor, yeah. And we watched the first couple seasons I, I think it got worse mm-hmm. after that but i i found myself i wasn't super interested in it it was just nice to see somebody trying to do good and, right and, and i couldn't refreshing find, yeah it was refreshing <laughs> I, I i go back i wish i could brainwash myself and go back and watch poldark again uh, uh it was just so good we actually bought the books it was so good and i can't find something redeeming and okay i'm gonna come back to you here tommy <laughs> Uh, not that 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 was that was worth the price of admission right there, but you know when you go through this time at on site, this intense therapy, do you look at it again? Because I'm enamored with change. I mean, you, you're talking some radical change. Here we are. I am, and I'm thinking in terms of it. You know, an incremental change. Let's do a little bit better habit, a little bit more health. And having a hard time thinking that I'm capable of some radical change or that it's even possible. So you go through this thing. Is it this whirlwind, fantastical, you know, movie story thing? Have you come out the other side of this and you're a new person or did you just have taste of a different possibility or was it literally a heart change or a psychosomatic shift? I think it was everything you just said. Okay. I think um, I think I had a deep, dark, burning desire to change. I think I was scared to death. I think I was scared of dying. Um, I took action on every single thing they told me to do. I did. Um, I believe it was more incremental than not incremental. Um, I think I believe I had a, war- a life-changing event in in a in a good way, not a rock bottom way. And I think I followed their playbook to the T and kept developing more playbook and more playbook. And no, I mean, what I love about post onsite, and I, I'm telling you, pre onsite, I was a Michelangelo of screwing up. I mean, I was world class. Um, but what I like about after onsite and with great, I've had great coaches in my life for the past 11 years, great mentors. I've been involved in mastermind groups, you know, always working on myself, right? And I never planned on leaving. I was a partner. I had zero, I'm making boatloads of money. I had no plans of leaving. Right. But here, I, here's what I love about my journey. It would be seven steps forward and three back. Six steps forward and four back. So I was always moving forward. But those self-sabotaging thoughts and fears and beliefs and the not good enoughs and the anger and the rage, they still come out. I'm 11 years into this. I mean, literally, I work on it every day. I have a full, I have a coach. I'm in a mastermind. I read incessantly. I have accountability part. I do all the things that I preach. I do. I can honestly look you right in the eye and say that. But if I told you my life was perfect, I'd be a flat lie. When I see bullying to this day, and it could be minor, and I think our whole, a lot of our social media and our politics and our news, I think it's just massive bullying. I think, and I think great social movements right now who want to make change, they're bullying people. Hmm. And when I see bullying, I have to work very hard not to become 
a 10x bigger bully because I just want to crush it and I want to crush it at all costs. I have to even watch that with my neighbors because I've, I've had some pretty good financial success in my life. So I live in a nice place and with living in a nice place comes a lot of entitled people and with their entitlement comes with a lot of bullying. Huh. And so when I see it, it's very difficult for me not to become that kid again who wants to undo it. Yeah. I, I'm being very honest. I know I, I, I get that. It's, you know, I'm interested. So on one hand, we've got the aspect of you can't run away from your problems. Wherever you go, you're going to take your problems with you. I get that, but I don't adhere to it much because I think, especially when we're talking about ourselves, I'm a big fan of circumstantial environmental change to help totally. foster things. And in my own story and some of my valleys, I literally up and changed the environment totally, gave things up and went. So it's interesting that with this experience you had, you did go back to the same environment. You went back to your job, back to your partnership, back to your marriage. And it's, again, just profound to me that you were able to make the change within that same environment. And you made the statement that you went from being the I think in essence, the person that people disliked most at work feared the most feared the most. Okay. To the person that they, what liked, trusted the most loved, loved, loved okay. and trusted, but it took a long time and I had to walk the walk. I mean, I went from being, you know, arrogance is loud. Insecurity is loud. I went from being one of the loudest guys in the room and trying to please people and buying all the drinks. And I was that guy. We all know that guy. Yeah. And I was that guy. I went from silent confidence to working on myself, to humbleness, to quietness. Um, but here's the thing. Not, not all of that community accepted my radical change. In fact, a lot of my male partners um, literally made fun of me publicly about it. Um, and I'll give you an example. In an entire firm meeting, this was said one time, you know, gentlemen, at the end of this meeting, we're going to go hit Hooters and a strip club, or you can go with Tommy and he's going to be in his office standing on his hands with a candle in his butt singing Kubaya. And I didn't do any of that stuff, Yeah. but they were publicly ridiculing me because I left the locker room. Yeah. I wasn't playing their game anymore. I was playing my game and I was going to be me and do me. And I'm not here to make fun of all those restaurants and those type of play. They, you do you, right? But I know I had to stay in my lane in order to keep myself mentally, emotionally, and spiritually sound and happy. And I think what I also gave people that made them trust and eventually love me and, and by far respect me. And by the way, I shot through the ranks of the firm. I mean, shot through them. They elected me to the board of directors at 39. Most of the people at that firm were in their 60s at the board level, that, just by being a good person and a good leader. But what I think I gave people was hope, and uh, John Acuff calls it the gift of going second. And because of my, I wasn't trying to be perfect. I wasn't trying to be tough. I could ask for help. I would say, I don't know. And I was in an industry where we were paid a fortune to have the answers, uh, a fortune. And there were sometimes I'd say, I don't know when it came to leadership. And I'd say, what do you think? And I, and we just, it just worked. The most important thing I was, Kevin, was me. I was finally finding who I was. And I wasn't really putting too much credence into what they, whoever they are, thought. Well, and that's the mental picture I'm having of you as this guy who was being propelled forward, driven by fear, pain, whatever. And you are looking out completely unaware of yourself. Now it's almost this perspective of, I mean, did you feel to some degree that you were, you were kind of watching your own self, like totally aware and watching yourself? Like, like, who is this guy? This is amazing. And you're just walking this stuff out, but you hardly still even knew who this new person was, who was evolving. It was, it was, it was always inside us. It's not inside of all of us. But I, you, that's a great analogy. I was certainly the watcher. Yeah. And, but not just watching me and my emotions and my thoughts and all of those crazy thoughts that pop in and out of our head and not giving them much credence. I was also watching everybody else's either being repelled from me or drawn to me. 
And what I noticed is I changed and I walked the walk and I talked the talk, but the walk on the walk's the key, right? To trust and respect and all that other stuff. The people that I was attracting into my life were like-minded people who were doing the work. I call it the inner game, who were working on their inner game so that their outer game was better. And so it's amazing to me from an energy standpoint, when you rewire your heart and mind and soul, what is drawn to you? Because everything's energy flow. Money's even energy flow. Conversation's energy flow. I mean, we I know that sounds a little woo-woo, but it's real, man. And what I thought was financial success, happiness, a real relationship with my wife, pre and post, it's night and day, it's 180. But it, it was, and to this day, I still do the work. And to this day, I still struggle with certain things, right? And so I just continue to, to, to go forward. And I'm just honest about it. So your testimony that you wrote about in the book is that as people witnessed you, witnessed this change over time, you just kept having more and more people coming to you asking what happened? Can you help me? Now, I I know people and I know you do too, high up in the corporate world and they're able to use their platform and success to just altruistically help people and, and remain there. What was it that brought you to the point of, instead of that saying, no, I actually want to do that. I want to, was it, was it a finally, I want to leave that anything wrong there? Or is it just, no, I have a stronger desire to go forward and devote myself to this. It was a twofold answer is I'm not saying their core values were wrong. I'm just saying the other board members and senior partners like myself, their core values were different than mine. And they were unreconcilable difference and non-negotiables for me. Okay. I could stay there and be assured of eight digits in my cash account by the time I left and be miserable and probably have a heart attack and constantly be beating my head against the wall uh, to get them to maybe make some incremental change to be better leaders in my vision, not their vision. I'm not saying theirs was wrong. It was just different. And so I knew I was going to, if I stayed, I was going to become the cancer and I felt like I'd already becoming the cancer. Um, And so I knew the right thing to do for me was to depart. I still didn't, I still had to sell my equity and resign my board seat, but I could go to any other firm that I wanted to go to. The second part of that answer is so many people were reaching out to me. And my final aha moment was I was at this conference in Italy and um, when a woman broke down on me and said, man, I really wish my husband, you could work with my husband. And that was the final moment. I was like, I, there's some gift I've got here. I don't know what it is. Um, I really have no idea how to do this. And, you know, I've been leading an organization and companies and, and all this other stuff, but I, I knew nothing about speaking into men's lives to help them to be more successful, better leaders, make more money, but also be better humans. I just knew what my formula I was doing. And I, after that woman broke down on me in Italy and said, I, and, and I'm talking, these are pretty powerful women and men. And I had a couple of other men over a beer or a walk. They just break down on me. And I'm like, there's some magic here. Right. Um, and I took a big risk, uh, resigned my board seat, took 60% of our household income o- away overnight. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Had an aha moment. I decided to call my wife on I literally Valentine's Day. I was calling her. It was a beautiful day. I was like, honey, I'm going to quit today. She goes, really? I was like, yeah, I'm going to quit today. And you can't just quit. You know, it takes about six to eight months to transition out of something like that. Um, but I had a, you know, what I, what I had learned through my journey is I didn't want any more regrets. Yeah. I didn't want to look up with a lot of money and an empty soul and chase the same dollars all these other financial consultants out there are chasing, or I could really go out and make an impact yeah. and be happy and figure out what to do it. So it took a lot of courage, took a lot of coaching. I was working with a lot of coaches at the time and it took a lot of support from my community, but I just decided to burn the boats brother and go chase a dream. And that's what I did. Well, I love it. Let me ask about that from a, not tactical, not the right word, but even as we talk about, when you looked back at charisma, you developed charisma. So to go from this, so you have a personal experience. People witness that. 
and they start seeking you out. That's the perfect makeup to pursue coaching, counseling, consulting, whatever. That's my, my dad's classic thing. You know, if you want to want, if you're concerned or wondering about being a coach, the question to ask is, are people already asking for your counsel, guidance, and advice? So here they are you. Now that does not make you though, a good coach, consultant, uh, you know, person did that. Was that something that you felt was a fair fit or was that something that you then went after and said, now I have to learn to become proficient at how to connect? You know, again, you, you experience onsite, you get these professional rock star counselors, therapists, coaches, whatever. And we see that a lot. You see that a lot. People go and experience that go, man, I want to do that too. Well, it doesn't mean that you're cut out to do that. So how yep. did that, what was the fruition? How did that evolve? I think it was a combination of those street smarts, um, credibility from my financial background, because the particular market I was going after is more seasoned bankers, lawyers, executives, entrepreneurs. I mean, those were my community, right? Because we were helping them buy and sell their companies. We we're doing financial consulting, helping them be more profitable. So I had credibility within this world because I've been in this world for 20 years and they paid me a fortune for that advice. So I think just by me doing that, yeah. I was used to getting paid to give good advice. Okay. Another straw in my hat, even when I was in the financial world, I always had coaches helping me with marketing or certain skills or emotional intelligence. And I failed on the emotional intelligence clearly because I was closed. Um, and when I decided to go into this transition, I was working a big time with a woman named Nancy Vito, who's a world-class life coach here in Atlanta. And and I was reading incessantly. I mean, like literally I was reading everything I can get my hands on. So between my practical knowledge, my financial knowledge, working with coaches, I still to this day work with coaches to this day. Um, this year I've decided to work with Darren Hardy. And so I work, I constantly practicing this craft. I'm constantly going to conferences to learn this craft, reading, uh, working with coaches. I run masterminds. Guess what I do? I go and join masterminds so that I can, I, it's a cultivation of A, I think it's inherent charisma. I'm an incredible listener because I used to in a former life get paid to listen and I get paid now to listen to people. Um, and using the skills that I learned in survival, using the skills I learned in the financial world and cultivating new skills and constantly sharpening that pencil. I think it's a combination of those three things to this. It's like anything. If you stop dribbling a basketball, you're not going to be good at dribbling anymore to be a pro in our craft. We have to constantly work on our craft. And that's something I take great pride in because I work on my craft every single day. When you're working with people who, well, every person you're working with by proxy is seeking change. They're yep. seeking positive change. And with you having had such a radical experience, I mean, as you know, I mean, there are, you just, you know, talked about other people you work with. There are other coaches consult. Do you refer to your, is coach the primary label that yeah. you, okay. Yep. So coaches, so all, coaches out here, life coaches, and there are so many amazing, you know, rock star coaches. Unbelievable. Yeah. None of them and, or you are, the perfect coach for everybody are the right coach for everybody have the same acumen in certain areas. So with that said, how would you define somewhat, explain somewhat your perspective on change and our ability to change from your flavor for lack of a better term, you know, from your perspective, having been such a radical thing. Cause I, I mean, I can't relate to it at all, Tommy. I had, you know, my dad, I, I didn't grow up with uh, a whole lot of trauma. Dan's and, goodness. <laughs> yeah. And yet he is an incredible coach. Um, now I, I don't, I don't uh, work in that capacity anymore. I have in the past and I've got, you know, I've, I can do some things, but again, so all that to say though, you have a specific experience. How does that flavor your perspective with people on change their ability to change? So I've niched it down to, to where me particular, I now only work with executive men. I used to work with men and women. We're actually going to start an entire women's movement in 2022 but I've niched it down to men. So when men, whether it's in the mastermind format, a retreat format, or a one-on-one -on -one format, they, I have street cred because I've sat in the boardroom. I've been a senior partner. I've worked with countless, countless companies. So it's a, it's a balance of 
given them, here's what men want. They want power, which they equate with status, which they equate with money and title, and they crave respect. That's what men crave. Okay, that's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to help you make more money. Did that for 20 years. I'm world-class at money. I'm going to help you gain more power, and they don't know what that actually means. I'm going to help you earn a lot more respect, and with that, you're going to get status. That's what, that's what they come to me to buy. When they get here, I give them what they need. They need a stronger emotional muscle, mental muscle, spiritual muscle. We always are working in the business, you know, whether it's a partnership agreement, buying or selling a company, a difficult conversation with an employee, scalability, whatever it is. My former background, we're always playing in that world somewhat. But I require every single human being that walks through my door to concentrate on the inner game first. Because all men, whether they like it or not, whether they're, they're wearing all this armor and mask that we talked about, they all have insecurities. They all have fears. They struggle like hell with loving themselves. They struggle big time. Not, not 99%, not 95%, 100% of all human beings, men and women, struggle in their relationship with their significant other. We struggle there. And so we, how do we make that stronger? How do we make you more confident, more courageous? How do we help you receive and give love a little more? How do we help you with your head up and your shoulders back? Yeah, we're going to give you all the power, all the respect, all the status. We're going to help you be a better leader and make more money. We're going to do all that. But I require people when they come in, and there's, by the time they get through the door, that I know everything about them. I mean everything about them. But I also give them the gift of going second. There's nothing they can say to me that I'm going to judge them on. There's nothing they can say that I can't undo. But if they're not willing to lean in and do the inner game, work on those muscles that we talked about, I have no interest in working. If they just want to go into have a big network, as do you, um, if they just want to look behind the scenes of my network and make more money, there's plenty of groups out there and people out there for that. I mean, I can name you 100 right now. But if you want to be a better leader, a better man, a better husband, and ultimately make more money as a result of one, two, and three, then I'm all in on you. That's my flavor. Yeah. Well, it's significant. Again, I'm, uh, I'm grateful to do this with you to talk about this because it's changed, it's changed my perspective somewhat on maybe somewhat of that, the, the innate abilities that we have, the... The do- you know, I started off saying that the dormant, again, the movie character who something happens, they rise up, the hero rises up. So I hear you saying that it is, it's in there. You it's believe all, it's in all of us. Okay. okay. But it's hard. Okay. It's super hard. Change is hard, man. Mm-hmm. You've, you, who was it? Gandhi that said, you know, who wants to change the world and everybody raises their hand. I don't know who said this. I'm giving Gandhi the credit. Everybody raises their hand. They say, who wants to change themselves? Nobody raises their hands. Cause it's hard, man. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, it's easy to drink that six beer. It's easy to watch eight hours of Netflix. It's easy to get on our phone and go to porn. It's easy to scroll social media and play video games or to numb ourselves in a thousand. Different- That's easy, man. But what's hard is being happy. What's hard is self-confidence. What's hard is courage. What's hard is success because you've got to work your butt off for all those things. And it takes work. You know, people think Jeff Bezos is the richest guy in the world. But yeah, 40-something years of working for that, man. Yeah. And by the way, we all struggle. Here's where the thing I want the audience, because this is the most important thing, is we are not alone. You are not alone in your deep, dark desires. You are not alone in your fears, your insecurities. You're not good enough in whatever way you don't feel good enough. Own it. There's a billion others just like you with the same, but are you going to be in that top 10% that does something, something different tomorrow, today, to change your situation, to be more happier, to be more peaceful, to be more successful, to be more financially intimate, whatever that your thing is. Change is hard, man. It's hard. Yeah. And I think we as a society and humans are inherently lazy and our technology has made it even worse. And so, you know, it's carpe diem. Are you going to participate in your yeah. own rescue or are you going to keep living that story? What my mentor told me, man, I, I appreciate you saying that Tommy, uh, <clears throat> I am submitting the manuscript for my book, uh, today is actually, it'll probably be tomorrow. Congratulations, brother. Yeah. Thank you. And part of, 
I have a piece in there that probably deserves its own book in and of itself, but it really speaks to you that we here in the personal development arena, the self-help, the health and wellness, don't give the gravity due to change. And, and I, what I wrote about, and I end up speaking a lot is we cannot not be brainwashed in our youth and our upbringing. You can't, I can't in my, in the best that I'm trying, Tommy, but I'm brainwashing my kids, doggone it. The best I can do, the best I can do is tell them guys, I can't not brainwash you. You're You're going to have to brainwash yourself. And when you talk about that, I feel like that's the thing that we don't uphold on this journey is that, man, if you want to change, you're going to, this is brain. You have to re brainwash. This is massive. And we don't uh, yeah, rewire. We don't maybe because it just doesn't sell that well. That's, that's a hard, that's a hard sell. I don't want to buy that book. I want to buy the five, (laughs) five steps to change your life in five days. That sounds good. I don't want to hear this is years. (laughs) Yeah. So thank you. Well, but it also then Tommy, then this is why you're here is because, um, I, I finally had to connect with you because I kept having other guys say, dude, you gotta, you gotta connect with Tommy because he's been tremendous in my life. And it's not to, you know, just to toot your horn, but to showcase what you went through and the change that you went through, what it took. I don't, I don't want to have, I don't want to have the trauma that you had to get to where you, you are either. I know that that's not necessary, but to look at the gravity of it, man, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to be here, to let me have a conversation with you, to dig this stuff up. And I'm, I'm proud to have heard it myself. I always get to be the first student and eager to give it to the audience as well. And, uh, and eager to, to stay connected with you, brother. Uh, thank, thank you. Thank you, man. That's You're so kind. And I want to leave with this. And no matter who you look up to, all of us, we all look up to something or someone, right? Is that particular human has their own scars, their own stories, their own insecurities, um, their own challenges. And that's the key to all of this is we're not alone. And success comes with a price. Um, Massive success comes with a price. Change comes with work. And that you've got to know you're not alone. I don't have it all figured out. That's what one of my differentiators is. I walk the journey with you shoulder to shoulder because I work on it every day and have the same struggles. But it's totally, totally up to us to participate in our own rescues, look in the mirror, it's the problem and the solution, and make a change to do something a little bit different. And you can have whatever you want. You just got to believe and take action. Believe and take action. Intention and action. And I'll stop there, brother. Hey, I can't anchor it any better. Tommy, thank you. You're welcome, bro. Well, friends, again, if you want to hear more of Tommy's story, get his book on Amazon, Legendary, a simple playbook for building and living a legendary life and being remembered as a legend. And you can visit his website at TommyBreedLove.com. Coming up in episode 892, I asked this question on Facebook. Business owners, one, what is your business? Number two, where are you finding the most success in your business today? And three, where are you finding the most challenge? Join us to hear what is and isn't working for the business owners out there in our audience right now. Till then, thank you as always for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together.